The question that Nathaniel asked me to think about is what is Augustine's teaching about the earthly city and how can it help us live well in our political communities? So perhaps you know that this teaching about the earthly city um, comes to the fore most prominently in his big book called The City of God. Um, City of God was written in response originally to the sack of Rome, which occurred in 410, and it took him a very long time to write this book. It came out in chunks. Um, so while it was originally a response to those who said, well, the reason why Rome was sacked was the Christians' fault uh, for this or that or the other reason, eventually the book balloons into a holistic defense of the city of God. Um, and so, of course, that uh, includes his discussion of these two cities, um, which I'm going to get into in a minute. In a minute. But um, first of all, what does his account of the earthly city give us? I would suggest three things. The first is a psychology of self-love. And again, I'll explain what self-love is in a minute, but a psychology of self-love. He shows us how the earthly city thinks and how that relates to how the earthly city loves. The second thing the account of the earthly city gives us is a dynamic of self-love. He shows us how the earthly city behaves. And the final thing is it's an expose of self-love which is to say he unmasks it. He shows us the futility of the earthly city's project. So how can understanding this help us live well in our political communities? Well, if it were the case that Augustine's account of the earthly city was simply an account of politics, then I would be quite tempted to throw up my hands and say, see you later, I'm gonna opt out. It seems like if politics is the earthly city, then our choices are either to opt out or to sell out. But fortunately, I don't think that's what Augustine is doing. Rather, I think that he makes significant conceptual space between politics and the earthly city. And that's something that once we see it can help us live well in our political communities. Why and how? Well, he essentially presents the earthly city as something deeply ugly, deeply tragic. Um, it gains power only by losing something of greater worth in the process. Uh, it's ultimately a hollow crown as it sits and reigns in, in the world. So he gives us a desire to reject participating in the earthly city. That's what he wants to do. He wants us to help he wants to help us desire to live in the city of God, to participate in it. So in the end, this text um, undermines, and I'll explain how this is a big claim that I'm making, and I'll try and get at it um, through these four quotes. But I would suggest that Augustine undermines the earthly city's claims on politics and about politics. The earthly city has a stake in presenting political life in a particular way. And if we buy into that, um, then we're either tempted to opt out or sell out. But there's a third way, which is to participate in political life without participating in the earthly city. These are separate things. How can we participate in political life without participating in the earthly city? Well, we will fail over and over, but there is an invitation into a different city, um, a different dynamic, which is um, the economy of love given by by God. And if we allow ourselves to enter into that ever more fully to be um, healed by it, then we can participate in political life in a way that is beyond the script of the earthly city. 
All that to say, when it comes to politics, Augustine's teaching about the earthly city is a diagnosis of what's wrong with human society, and it's not an account of political life per se. So let's hope that I can kind of sketch out how this is the case and how Augustine's teaching about the earthly city leads us to those kind of conclusions. So at this point, I wanted to work through four quotes from the text um, that you probably, if you've read it, maybe would be some of the ones that would come to mind for you as well. Um, so let me share screen real fast. Can everyone see that? The, the, the quote? Yeah? Okay, great. All right. So we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love reaching to the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city by the love of God carried as far as contempt of self. Okay, so what do we make of this quote? Well, this quote is telling us the origin of these two cities were each in a kind of love. One self-love, the other the love of God. Okay, so when you read this at first, I think it's tempting to read it as, okay, I love myself. No one says that, right? But the idea would be secretly that's what's going on. We're going to aggregate into a group, a, a voluntary association over here. And then the people that love God, we pick God. And so we're going to self-aggregate into this other voluntary association over here. The What human beings love is the source of these two cities. Actually, something quite different is going on in this account. Um, and I hope that these two pictures perhaps get at that difference. Um, it's a sort of ontological claim. So the earthly city is created by self-love reaching to the point of contempt for God, whereas the heavenly city is created by the love of God carried as far as contempt of self. All right, so let's start with love of God. Um, what love is carried as far as contempt of self? Well, if you think about it, it's not our love for God that's carried as far as contempt of self, but rather God's love for us, right? So the cross, which is carried, um, that's the love that's carried so far as to give, give God, you know, God to give his very self for us, right? Um, so the love of God primarily is God's love giving, giving to all of creation, bringing creation into being, right? This sort of gift love that, that is at the very heart of God himself. And that's the love that's carried as far as contempt of self. So primarily it's God's love for us, but then that love in being a creative love uh, invites those who are created to receive and respond to it. So love of God is relational. It's God's love for us and our love for God, which we receive and return. So it's this one love that unites God and all creatures. So it's this kind of relational vision of love. Whereas self-love carried to the point of contempt for God, reaching to the point of contempt for God, actually that difference I think is, is also quite beautiful. So a sort of um, almost a metastasizing outwards, the self-love um, metastasizing, ballooning, bloating so greatly that it, it reaches those heights of contempt for God. So self-love um, is love of self rather the self's love for itself. It's not relational. It's simply um, inverted. 
So we have these two kinds of loves, one of which is utterly relational, coming out of a, a divine gift that incorporates and receives and returns and responds. And then on the other side of it, this self-love that is entirely enclosed upon itself. All right. Um, so what does it mean that these two loves created the two cities? Well, the first one perhaps makes more sense and that I've already started to, started to talk about it, which is that God's love creates the city of God. The whole of reality is created in gift love. And this is really central to Augustine's vision. But how is it possible for self-love to generate a community, an earthly city? That, I think, um, already hints at the parodic, the parody that is at the heart of the earthly city. It's an illusory community. It's not even really a community. John Cavadini, the great uh, teacher of, I think, both Nathaniel and I, um, uh, said that the earthly city is a community that is no community. It's not a community at all. It pretends to be a community, but it's hollow. Um, so again, the earthly city in Augustine's depiction, it appears itself professes to be a kind of creative, generative, powerful. But as we'll see in the next quote that I'm going to pull up, it only exists by falling away. Its creation is a kind of anti-creation. Um, what kind of community can it generate if everyone is turned in upon themselves? Well, not much of a community with not much of a common good. Okay, so back to the quote. All right, so on the one side, we have Narcissus here staring at himself. That would be self-love. So it's not like self-love as in self-care. It's self-love as in um, selfish love turned in towards oneself. And on the other side, love of God, this sort of radical gift um, that is at the heart of all reality. Okay, so the second quote um, is probably for my work, probably the most central read that I have on the earthly city. I would say it's the most important gloss on the earthly city that, that is in the whole text. It's actually the, um, what are those called? I think it's epigraph. Is that the right word? Epitaph? Not sure. One of the two, the thing at the beginning, the quote at the beginning of the book. Um, so Augustine, when he gives his account of the origins of the two cities, he, you know, he starts by talking about creation. He talks about the angels, the fall of the angels. So Satan, the angel who fell, who kind of instigated the creation of the earthly city by this anti-creation. So the devil, um, he refused to be subject to his creator and in his arrogance, supposed that he wielded power as his own private possession and rejoiced in that power. And thus he was both deceived and deceiving because no one can escape the power of the omnipotent. He has refused to accept reality and in his arrogant pride presumes to counterfeit an unreality. And of course, that, unrea that unreality is the earthly city. Um, and it's a counterfeit community. It's a counterfeit rival to the city of God. If the earthly city is a rival to the city of God, it's not in the sense of a Manichaean equal. So if you think about the Manichaean vision where you had a good power and an evil power, and they're sort of equally powerful, here we have an earthly city which is morally opposed or in love opposed to the city of God. But in fact, it's act actually entirely derivative, secondary, hollow, empty, illusory. Okay, so let me try and break down this quote because I think it's really important for the city of God and the teaching about the earthly city. 
Um, and let me just pause to say that I'm sure that what I'm saying maybe is, is skimming the surface. I know it is. Um, so please, if you have questions, don't hesitate to ask, um, write them down and, and I will try and delve more deeply into this, which I can't, um, I can't do justice to, to this. Okay. Everyone see me. Okay. All set. Okay, good. Okay. So not only does this present a theology, it also presents a psychology that I think is really recognizable. Um, but it's really in this important theological context, which gives a kind of ontology of, of the illusory or the parody, like the, st the status as a parody that the earthly city is. So he refused to be subject to his creator. Okay, the first thing, again, we see that God is a creator. He, he brought this being into existence utterly gratuitously, right? Um, so this refusal to be subject is to see cre a creator as something not, um, not in a stance of gratitude, but rather in a stance of rivalry. In his arrogance, he supposed that he wielded power at his, as his private possession and rejoiced in that power. So to, again, it's this sort of contrast between seeing gift as gift and seeing gift as something that is mine, is my private possession to do with what I like and to love it as your private possession. So here, of course, again, it's, it's, an, it's looking at the same reality that we saw in the first quote from another angle. We've again got self-love reaching to the point of contempt for God. Um, so to refuse to recognize the giftedness of things like power Augustine thinks it's always going to metastasize into a refusal to accept reality itself. So what is power for? Well, in Augustine's economy of reality, the fundamental economy of reality, power is always um, for service, for the service of this commonwealth of all creatures that he describes. So anything that we we receive, a power that we receive is always to be cast as a gift, properly understood. Okay. So, but somehow this self-love elicits a shift um, in paradigm for, for, for Satan. And, you know, anytime self-love, this is just the psychology of it. It's just shift from thinking about how am I in relationship with God? And that's a thought that always elicits gratitude. How am I in relation with God to where am I in relation to God? So this is a new lens to look at things from. It's an assessment of all things in terms of power and status. And this lens always seems sophisticated, but Augustine presents it as a kind of self-blinding. He goes on to say that the devil is both deceived and dece deceiving. Fundamentally, he's wrong about what will make him happy. Um, he's wrong about what makes God happy. He looks at God and sees his status and says, that's why God's happy. But actually, it's the love at the heart of the Trinity, this love, loving love that makes God happy. And this love in creating, he shares as a gift. And if we receive it as a gift, that is the key to happiness. The happiness, the only happiness open to the creature to receive love as a gift and to return it, to participate in it. So the devil is deceived about what makes God happy, which is why he's jealous of God. He's deceived about what will make him happy. 
He's also deceived that he could usurp God's position. Um, Augustine, you know, he's poking in this quote um, when he's saying that no one, no one can overcome the power of the omnipotent. It's just a fact um, in Augustine's cosmology that God is God and you can't create. You can only uncreate, really. So the devil's attempt to usurp God's position is simply a hollow boast. Um, the power only comes through the claim that he's done so. So deceived and deceiving. So that's where the power comes in. He draws others into his same illusion. For Augustine, the psychology of self-love um, I think one of the most fascinating and true aspects of it is that when I'm committed to my own fantasy, this leads me to use others to shore up my own illusion. When we have a, something that we love as if it were truth in the place of truth, there's a part of us that knows deep down that it's not true. And so we have to, to plug all the holes as it were, that would cause us to, to, to remember um, this is a lie. So I shore up my illusion by reinforcing it, by getting as many people as possible to reinforce it with me. So the devil imitates God by creating his own kingdom where he's number one. Um, he needs subjects, right? So we've got this seduction of Adam and Eve, um, which is utterly ironic because he wants freedom for himself. He wants um, to be number one. And that's exactly the promise that he peddles to them. Um, so what he seeks this sort of being free, being um, one's own God, um, to be God without God. That's what he desires. And yet somehow he knows that in causing Adam and Eve to be seduced by that promise, he will rule over them. So in other words, Augustine, I think, very cleverly pre presents the earthly city as a kind of pyramid scheme, whereas this, there's this constant scramble to sort of manipulate, um, to get a one-up on others, to, to draw others in, to leverage them, but only in so far as it gets you what you want. And there's a sort of irony where you see through the claim when it comes to, to what it's going to do to others, but somehow you don't see through it when it comes to yourself. So again, there's this kind of contradiction at the heart of the earthly city. Um, so I'm going to jump from this to a conclusion about what this says about the earthly city itself. Um, what I would suggest is that at the heart of the earthly city is a common project, which is the reservation of the right to define reality in one's own way. But of course, defining reality is always editing reality, re-editing it because it was spoken originally in the word um, brought into creation by God. So this project of reconstruing reality in a way that you want it to be, um, again, there's no common good there because every illusion can be one's own particular type of illusion. Um, the only way in which there's a kind of detente between these warring factions is in that fundamental, that fundamental place where they're all okay with um, the other propping up the idea that I can define or edit reality for myself. So we're brought to this place where we have this counterfeit unreality that only exists by falling away um, it's a community that is no community in the sense that there's no common good there other than saying no 
and reserving the right to define things as I wish. Okay. So let me, I'm sorry, one second. So um, just to, to draw that out, um, refusing to be subject to the creator, the sort of refusal to see gift as gift, um, loving power as our own possession. Uh, what that means, again, is just wanting to be my own God. Um, this project, which is the project of the earthly city, is sort of metastasizes outwards because while I am convinced that I can do it for myself, I also want to co-opt others into it not with a view to liberating them, but with a view to them getting me what I want. And all this he describes as a kind of counterfeit unreality. All right. So the third quote um, jumps straight to book 19, which is where he really gets into politics. And we're only gonna, as I said, I'm only gonna skim the surface of, of of what he says about politics here, um, hopefully with a view to, to having a conversation later. But I hope that you can see this, this sort of presentation of a dynamic of the earthly city and a counterfeiting and unreality uh, is such a helpful way to understand the political dynamic in which we live, where we have these vying attempts to define politics in a certain way. Um, but let me say a little bit more about that in a minute. So Pride, pride um, is another aspect of self-love. Basically, pride is 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 exalting oneself to the level of God, which is just another lens to look at what we were looking at in the previous quote. Um, pride is a perverted imitation of God, for pride hates a fellowship of equality under God and seeks to impose its own dominion on fellow men and women in place of God's rule. This means that it hates the just peace of God and loves its own peace of injustice. So when people read Augustine on politics, one of the things that they really notice about uh, his diagnosis is uh, what the love of domination looks like and how it's so pervasive in political life and how it's so corrosive of political life. Um, I think it's really easy to see what he's saying in this quote here, um, this, this idea of imposing your dominion on others. Uh, you have some kind of vision of peace that's nefarious um, that, that you're imposing. You know, one, one can think about what's going on in, in Ukraine as a kind of easy example here. Um, but I think it goes deeper than that barefaced love of domination that we all see so very clearly. Um, in fact, we're always in this struggle of battling over which vision of earthly peace hold sway in our political communities. And I would suggest that politics, according to the earthly city, is nothing other than using power to impose your preferred vision of peace in your political community. So the earthly city believes that politics is using power to impose your preferred vision of peace on the earthly city on the political community. Um, but there's also this sort of, so he talks about um, hating the just peace of God and loving its own piece of injustice. The thing about the earthly city is that it's also engaged in this project of self-justification for, according to Augustine, he doesn't think that the devil, for example, 
conceives of himself as a bad guy, as it were, but rather that I have this power and it's my private possession and it's mine. Um, and I'm justified in defending it. So this sort of tack of self-justification um, is always at the heart of any attempt to impose your preferred vision of peace on the world, even if it's actually unmasked as unjust, one of the self-deceptions that's, that, that's at the heart of the dynamic of the earthly city is our ability to justify to ourselves why my vision of peace is actually the good one, the right one, the best one. So um, I can also talk about how this happens in Rome, but I, I had to leave things to the side, so I'm not going to. All right. Um, So here, again, this quote, this idea of um, imitating God by presenting yourself as, as, as good, as um, having a sort of prerogative to impose your vision of peace on your political community. But what, what, what you see goes, going on is that it's a prerogative to impose this vision. Okay. Is there another way forward? Well, yes. <laughs> Um, the beginning of the city of God, the preface to the whole text, I think is where we find Augustine showing us that when he's giving us a depiction of the earthly city and all its ugliness, it's not to say that that's all there is rather it's to say that's not all there is. And he says, it's very difficult to convince people that the earthly city, the you know, the, the using power to, 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 to get your justified aims um, uh, at the top of the, the agenda. Um, the, if there's something else there, you have, to, you have to be shown it. And that's what he's trying to do throughout this whole book. So this quote here, um, I know how great is the effort needed to convince the proud, all of us, of the power and excellence of humility an excellence which makes it soar above all the summits of this world, which sway in their temporal instability, overtopping them all with an eminence not arrogated by human pride, but granted by divine grace. So what you thought were the heights and the heights that you can only reach by, you know, following the rules of the earthly city aren't the heights. And he set himself a challenge of, of convincing his reader that there's something beyond the earthly city out there. And that's not obvious, especially when you look around yourself and you see, you know, so much destruction, so much selfishness, so much brokenness in the world. He wants to expand our vision so that we can come to see this power and excellence, this hidden power of humility, um, one in which death does not get the last word, in which power does not get the last word. Okay. All right. So, um, because pride sees everything in terms of a power struggle, it is blind to the hidden power of humility. I mean, the easiest way to think about this, of course, um, is the Lord of the Rings, right? Where Sauron never would have imagined that this little hobbit would be the one to, to, um, to, to bear the ring and then, you know, toss it. 
So pride sees everything in terms of an assessment of status. Um, this hidden power of humility is, 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 is not visible in that framework. Um, what is that hidden power of humility? Well, I would suggest that it's nothing other than the power to receive the love of God as gift. Insofar as we cling to our status as status, we don't see gift as a gift. And this is the temptation of the human condition to, to see what I've achieved as mine um, and to forget that fundamentally at bottom, everything is gift. So humility from the perspective of pride is dismissed as weakness from the get-go. Um, the proud never look up beyond the world. But he's making this claim that there is something beyond these heights. All right. So what are the lessons that um, this, this, these four quotes can give us? Um, well, perhaps a place to start is to think about what are the lies that the earthly city tells us about politics? Um, I think one of the major illusions that the earthly city puts forth is that we have to engage in political life in a certain way in order to be successful. Behaving politically has come to mean being Machiavellian in the name of one's principles. And we say these principles are what justify the Machiavellian behavior. Everything is reduced to power dynamics. But let's look at Augustine's vision. If the world has an original meaning, that is gift, and the earthly city imposes its own meaning on top of that original meaning, not in a way that can erase it, but only cover it over, then the meaning that the earthly city gives political life is secondary, derivative, false, illusory, in fact. So Augustine argues that the world has this original meaning in that it bears witness to the radical gratuity of all being. It bears witness to the primacy of an economy of love, which is nothing other than an economy of gift and service. But the earthly city reorients the significance of earthly things back to itself, political life included. It erects an economy of power covering over this fundamental economy of gift. So by showing that the earthly city is doing this, Augustine does create conceptual space between politics and the earthly city. The lie, in other words, is that we live simply in the earthly city. Rather, we live in a political community that's wounded by the earthly city. So political life in the end is not defined by the earthly city, but undermined by the earthly city. Another way to get at this is to look at what Augustine says about politics. Famously in book 14, he says that human beings are the most social creature by nature, only the most quarrelsome by perversion. There's actually a lot of Cicero in Augustine, which is to say that he presents the political project fundamentally as the shared creation of a res publica, a public thing. And that public thing is this bond of earthly peace. Earthly peace is, a, is, is thick. It's, it's a web of relationships um, where we are in peace with one another. 
And we are, as social beings, designed to come together, to work together, to share our particular gifts uh, with one another, to serve in, diff in the different roles that we have. So to be social by nature is nothing other than to say that we're supposed to work together for earthly peace. The political project fundamentally is natural. Earthly peace is a genuine good for the human being. Yes, it's secondary, transitory, but it's good. So the issue is that the construal of earthly peace is distorted by self-love. We're at war with one another in our projection of a particular construal of earthly peace. But Augustine says that we're actually called to work together for the sake of genuine earthly peace, even with those that we would consider our enemies. Um, and perhaps most importantly, we're called to bear witness to a way of behaving that's beyond the script of the earthly city. That is to say, if the earthly city says, your principles justify what you do, but what you do is in the end Machiavellian, um, Augustine says that to, to participate in the economy of, of, of the love of God is, is, to, is to go beyond that, um, to see that as a lie. So when we bear witness in this way, it's not as the righteous standing above the earthly city, but rather as humble participants in God's plan of renewing all of creation. Um, Augustine's really heavy, heavily pointing out our need for continual conversion. If we don't see ourselves in the description of the earthly city, then we're not looking very hard. Um, so the doctrine of the earthly city isn't a weapon to be leveraged against our enemies, but rather something to help us grow in humility, um, to point out our need to, for continual conversion, to draw us back to uh, the worship of God um, to remind us that we need God and to help us grow in gratitude. Also, he's really interesting in the way that he presents enemies as future friends. Um, there's no enemy that, that can't be viewed in that way because we were once God's enemies. So there's, there's an overcoming of the friend-enemy distinction at a radical level there. So let me just end by talking a little bit about the kind of cultural renewal that he thinks uh, is possible. It's not possible in the sense that it's guaranteed, um, but it's something that he thinks we're called to offer by bearing witness. He thinks that it's possible to bear witness to a way of behaving that can, not guaranteed to, expand the political imagination of our communities. He looks primarily at the martyrs who bear witness to the limits of power. Um, another person that he looks at is the Emperor Theodosius, who, after um, committing a rather atrocious, uh, he killed a bunch of people, we'll just put it that way. Um, he, pub he, he performed public penance. He said, I was wrong in doing this. And uh, he prostrated himself in front of a large community and, and admitted he was wrong, which at the time was very shocking. So expanding the cultural imagination, um, if it's not possible for us as a society to think that human beings ask for forgiveness because they're genuinely sorry for what they do, then our political imagination is 
enslaved to the dynamic of the earthly city. Um, to actually say sorry because you're sorry, that can bear witness to a possibility of something different, a different way of behaving. And it can bear it can bear fruit that could be surprising, but it can also be um, met with deaf ears, which is part of the risk of it. Um, I could say more about that, but um, I'll summarize this in, in two things. The first, the earthly city is defined by its perpetual attempts to edit the original meaning of reality, to erase meanings it does not like, and to reinforce illusions in which it has a stake. We do this. This is us. Um, the best chance we have for bringing about cultural renewal in our broken communities is by letting ourselves be reformed by the love of God, which is the only thing that can draw us out of this cycle. And in the end, Augustine thinks that hearts, the reformation of the heart, is what will allow us to participate in the particular roles that we have in society, um, to come at them in a way that uh, bears witness to a new way of being. And in the end, I would say that's how we live well in our political communities.